and to shift people's understanding of, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament is is all, you know, um, fire and brimstone and it's all dark and it's, it's scary and it's a, it's a world I'm disconnected from. When in reality, the servant songs of Isaiah are the genesis of our salvation. This is the Bible Sojourner, where we discuss issues related to the Bible, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Shalom and welcome. Thanks for joining. Welcome back to The Bible Sojourner. We have a special episode today. We are interviewing Kyle Swanson, who is a pastor and elder at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona. Kyle just came out with a book called Isaiah's Great Light, and it's a book that really, I think, the listening audience and viewers need to be aware of. And so I just want to extend a special welcome to Kyle Swanson. Kyle, thanks for being on the program. Brother, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I've been blessed by your ministry. I've been blessed by your writing. Uh, the baptism debate book that came out uh, just last year, uh, really, uh, really helpful in understanding that topic. And and we know that our brothers at Shepherd Seminary and in North Carolina are, are right in step with us, lock, uh, um, like-minded, and and so we we truly appreciate you guys. I appreciate you saying that, Kyle, and it, it definitely extends across to the uh, vast regions of Arizona on our behalf as well. We, we love you guys, and I know that uh, Mike Vlock has had a good relationship with you guys, and I've recently got the privilege to, to meet you all there and, and just really enjoy uh, what you guys are doing there. And actually, maybe uh, to kind of start off, uh, could you just explain a little bit about the church there and even some of the new projects you guys have been doing with Redeemer Media? Yeah, so Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona uh, was a, a church revitalization kind of turnaround uh, that started in 2015. Uh, the church was Desert View Bible Church before that. Um, for the longest time, it was actually Desert View Baptist Church, I apologize. And for the longest time, there was no view of the desert and there was no baptisms happening. So the church was just kind of languishing in its old identity, and there was no real desire to push into evangelism or to uh, to to do faithful ministry. And so, you know, through some leadership change and everything, Pastor John Benzinger, who's a, a master seminary grad, demon grad, uh, came in as the interim. Uh, and he started preaching through some biblical doctrine series and preached the church from 200 down to about 90 people. And they said, you're our guy. <laughs> and uh, they wanted him to come on full time because they knew he was going to teach them the unfiltered truth of God's word in a loving and shepherding manner. And so he started that in 2015. I came on board in 2019 uh, and uh, the church had grown to about five or 600 people. And so just in the first few years, it kind of found its equilibrium around, you know, 150, 200, and then it kind of grew to 300. Uh, we had to move to two services. When I came on, they had moved to three services on Sunday. Uh, we have kind of a smaller property. And so we, we wanted to uh, be able to accommodate everyone. And then about, I don't know, maybe about six months after I got here, uh, it had nothing to do with me, but just the way that things were going, the church was growing exponentially. There were some churches in the area that had gone, uh, for lack of a better term, woke, and were introducing social justice doctrines, were looking for excuses to go ecumen or um, um, egalitarian and introduce women pastors and things like that. So we were getting a lot of influx of 
uh, spiritual refugees who were looking for a solid Bible teaching church. And so uh, we were seeing conversion growth. We were also seeing people move to the area. So we were about 1,200 people. And then COVID struck. And uh, instead of taking our foot off the off the the gas pedal, we we decided to put our foot down on the gas pedal and create a, a kind of a media side of things so that we could create God exalting content that people could digest daily as they were isolated at home. So our church was doing two things. We were doing care ministries. So we're we're connecting with our people and you know helping in every way we could, but we were also creating content. And God really blessed that ministry. We went from about a thousand YouTube subscribers up to almost 30,000 in about four months because people were saying, hey, my church has sort of dropped the ball. They're not doing anything. We're not even meeting. They're not talking to us. But you guys are producing content every day that's Bible study oriented, sermon oriented, prayer oriented. And so we've kind of leaned into that. And we, we have a church now of about 2,000 on the weekends. We do five services. Uh, and then our online ministry, we've got about 40,000 YouTube subscribers. Uh, we don't fly that as a trophy or a, a flag of a badge of honor. We just look at that and say, this is a space, an online space of about four and a half billion people that are being inundated with false teaching and inundated with bad theology. And so we want to do our part to help to steward them and shepherd them, not leaving them in that online space and calling that a church, but helping to direct them towards trust in a, a Bible-based local church. And so we love doing that, and 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 hopefully God's being honored through all of that. So we have the Redeeming Truth podcast, Redeeming Truth Media, really, which is our podcast, our blog, our we're starting a publishing wing, and uh, uh, conferences down the road and some other things. Oh, that's really cool. Now, yourself you've been you've been there how long i've been here about four and a half years now okay Redeemer. now now what's kind of your background i know i know a little bit about you but mm-hmm. for the listener and the viewer you know how, how did you train for ministry how did you mm-hmm. get plugged in there at redeemer yeah so i was born and raised in southern california palm springs area spent about 15 years there uh grew up in the church dad was an elder mom played piano uh, can't ever really remember a time where I didn't mentally ascend to the truth of God's word. Uh, but as far as making it a a personal faith of trust in Christ for repentance of uh, from sin and and trust in Him as my Lord, you know, probably sometime in my late teens, early twenties. Uh, but we lived in San Diego for a year, spent a year at um, Shadow Mountain Community Church, uh, David Jeremiah's church. Then moved to LA in 1996 and spent 19 years uh, sitting under uh, Dr. MacArthur's teaching at Grace Community. That's kind of where I spiritually grew up. That's where I was challenged really the deepest in my understanding of God's word and my love for his word. Um, And so while I was there, uh, I I had gotten involved in in the restaurant business. I had trained for that. I was working in in that industry, but I really felt the Lord pulling me towards ministry and and kind of I don't want to say robbing me of my joy, but really kind of um, taking away my joy for the pursuit of worldly things and 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 placing my affections towards ministry. He made that really clear for me in January of 2005 at a conference called the Resolved Conferences. Uh, Steve Lawson was preaching, and and he put out a bold call to uh, th- these conferences were going to be to call the next generation of men into gospel ministry, and I it was like a lightning bolt. I just, I felt the Lord like isolate me in that moment and just kind of make it clear, this is what I'm calling you to. 
And that was affirmed by pastors and by other uh, wise counsel in my life. And so I left the restaurant business. I, in 2005, started at the master's, uh, pardon me, the master's university uh, to finish my undergrad. It was there where I met my wife, Jackie. Uh, we sang in the master's chorale together. We took a lot of classes together. We're both music majors. And then uh, from 2000, we graduated in 2009, 2011, started at the master's seminary. It was just so natural to study at both of those places because all of the men leading those institutions were my pastors and my friends and my mentors. And so I love that model. I, I love when guys come in from around the world to study there as well, but it was just, it was such a perfect God-given gift to be there. And then I uh, graduated there in 2015 and uh, Jackie and I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and I pursued a doctor of ministry at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So finished that. And then 2019, uh, I had known John Benzinger for many, many years, and we had always kind of dreamed of doing ministry together. So God opened that door in 2019, and we've been here riding this incredible wave of God's grace and and excitement about ministry ever since. I keep waiting for it to crash, you know, but God's just been so kind to us, and, and we're enjoying it as, as we can. Oh, praise the so, Lord. And, That's really and cool. Also, I, I can't fail to mention this. This year, we were blessed with a daughter. So we've been married almost uh, 13 and 13 years uh, before God granted that. We had some fertility issues. So anyone out there dealing with that, we're, we're praying for you. And, um, you know, please know that God is with you and is sovereign in that. But so we have a little daughter. She's nine months old. Her name is Lucy. We love her. Oh, that's so great. Now, that's actually a perfect introduction or I guess transition <laughs> to what we're talking about, because why did you pick the name Lucy then? Yeah. So the name Lucy uh, comes from the Latin word lux, which means light. And, uh, you know, when 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 Jesus announces himself as the light of the world, there is an image in there that is so incredibly hopeful and salvific and, and beautiful uh, that I love that word and I love the name. So we went with Lucy. Oh, uh, that's that's really cool. No, I, I think I think that's great. And so the title of the book that you wrote is Isaiah's Great Light, The Salvation mm-hmm. of God in the Servant Songs. Mm-hmm. OK, and I know this is something uh, you're really passionate about. And so you want to just. Uh, tell us uh, why you really got interested in this. I mean, most people, I suppose there are exceptions, but most people aren't <laughs> going to be, you know, really picking Isaiah as their go-to, as something they mm-hmm. want to spend a lot of time in. So how yeah. is it that you got interested in this and ended up writing a book on it? Yeah, I mean, I thank Dr. Greg Harris, uh, who was one of my expositional uh, instructors and professors at the Master Seminary. Uh, by the way, anyone not choosing Isaiah is wrong. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's just, it's the gospel. It's so magnificent and wonderful. And yeah, it can be a little bit intimidating and challenging to to kind of crack the nut at first and, and get in and see what's in there. But I really do thank Dr. Greg Harris. His his uh, legacy of ministry is, is so global and far-reaching, and yet so many people don't know who he is. He has a, a series of books called The Glory Books that are incredibly enriching. But I took a class with him called The Exposition of Isaiah, and I wanted to understand the book more. It was one of those parts of the Bible that I had read. Uh, I just never really quite got the bug to understand it. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, dig into this with him. And he did such a great job of breaking it down into understandable and digestible pieces. So understanding the big picture themes of salvation and and you know God's judgment, but restoration and God's covenant love for his people— 
but then seeing these major breakdowns to understand where we are, what's going on, kind of this overarching theme of Isaiah serving as God's divine prosecutor, bringing the nation of Israel to account for their crimes against against God and why they would be held to judgment, but yet God's covenant love for them would bring them through and bring them to restoration. Uh, and then, so as we got to that latter half of Isaiah, you know, mostly blessing, but some judgment, you know, I started seeing these, I was introduced to these songs. And of course, you know, you think, oh, well, of course I know Isaiah 53. Wait, there's other songs in there? And so I started diving in and we had to choose a text uh, to do an exegetical project and then write a sermon. And so I chose Isaiah 49 because the hopeful theme of global salvation was so enticing. And uh, so I was able to take that and then I was able to use that sermon probably three or four times in some pulpit supply situations. And it really gave me the opportunity to refine and 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 preach through a text multiple times to dive really, really deep in the understanding of it. And then when I got to Redeemer, I'm on the you know teaching and preaching rotation here. Uh, and so we're all doing our own series. And so I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll preach through the servant songs. There's four of them that'll, you know, that'll take me a few months, um, you know, in the rotation, but then you get to the fourth song and there's five stanzas of three verses. So it turned into from four into eight sermons, um, which took about a year to preach through because I'm not the primary lead teaching pastor, but as I was up, and so people were just getting fired up about the content. They were so excited to hear. And I mean, it is just magnificent, like, you know, mountaintop preaching material. And so you can't preach it small. You have to just preach the grand grand nature of it. So as I did that, people were getting very, very interested and excited. When I got to the end of the series, I felt it would be a disservice, not only to the church, but to the text to simply stop there. So I said, we've got to turn this into some kind of other resource. And what better way to take a sermon series that you've really, you've done exegetical work, background studies, context studies, all of this, you have all your research done. And then, you know, I also will manuscript ahead of time. And so I had 50,000 words written already. And so it's like, let's take that material and and reform it into a a, a resource that is for the church. Oh, that's that's so cool. So when you're working on this, you're you're obviously preaching, you know, your heart out. You know the people that are in in the sermon listening. You know, you're trying to make it applicable to them. Yeah. You know, so, so what kind of what kind of person did you have in mind when you wrote the book? Then same kind of person, or what was your thought behind that? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, you know some of the challenge in our circles, especially on kind of higher seminary levels, is everybody wants to write books for academia, which is a wonderful sphere in which to write. Um, I probably see myself as the guy that wants to introduce people to the Bible. I want people to get their first touch exposure. I teach 16 classes here at Redeemer, and all of them are designed. If you've never studied the Old Testament, never studied New Testament, never studied theology or church history or practical theological topics— I want to introduce them to you, make you excited about them, and bring you along. And so this book, though, you know, I, I do believe it has a lot to contribute, is designed for 
you, the, the, your members of the church sitting in the pews. They've not delved into Isaiah before. They've not studied the, the best commentaries, gotten into the, the, you know, the, the, the Hebrew grammar or the ancient Near East context studies. This is, it's designed to pull you in like gravity to a topic that is so beautiful and so encouraging and to shift people's understanding of, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament is is all, you know, um, fire and brimstone and it's all dark and it's, it's scary and it's a, it's a world I'm disconnected from. When in reality, the servant songs of Isaiah are the genesis of our salvation in so many ways, right? We have the gospel proclaimed from Genesis 3 all the way through the Bible, but the the prophetic uh, foretellings of the Messiah, who he is, what's his ministry, when is he coming, what is he going to accomplish, are all found in Isaiah and the servant songs. And what better subject for those who call themselves Christians to study other than the prophetic foretellings of the Christ in whom they place their trust? So I can tell you, uh, you're not really excited about this subject at all, <laughs> apparently, right? <laughs> No, I think that's I think that's great. In fact, um, I would just second what you said and point out that, you know, when you look through the book and you read it, uh, you're not stumbling over. OK, do I have to reach for my Hebrew lexicon and look up this? I mean, you do, you do such a great job of just making sure it's understandable and accessible. And I think that that's one of the great values to the book. So you definitely are to be commended on that. Uh, I I think a lot of times when we and I include myself in this. I'm trying to shame myself here. Sometimes when, <laughs> when we write things, we we think it's a glory or a blessing to not be understood very clearly for some reason. I don't know. It but, well, it is that it's it's the allure of academia. And it's like if I can speak in such a way that I impress all the people in the room who are smarter than me, then maybe I'm that smart too, or I can be seen as as smart as them. And there is that temptation, and there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that unless we're trying to bring glory to ourselves. But the point is, revelation from God is revealed truth. It means it's meant to be clear and understandable. And so for those of us who dive into the hard problem solving of those things, Let's digest that and make it easily understandable for our people. That's our gifting. That's what we're called to do, not to impress them with our fancy words. And so yeah. that's that's kind of our mentality here at Redeemer. We we can come across, you know, a little bit simple and you know, we're we're kind of like a mashup of Grace Community Church and Calvary Chapel. Like everyone thinks we're all casual and it's, you know, it's real easy going. But the idea is take the depth of truth that we would get from a MacArthur and couch it in language that anyone in the room can understand. Like you're having guests over to your house. You don't use private family talk. You know, you open up and, and welcome them in and, and ingratiate them into the conversation so they can understand. And that's what we want to do. So that's oh, what that's, I was really trying to accomplish here. That's great. And I think, I think you've, uh, you've definitely uh, done a good job of working toward that goal. So I applaud you for that. Now, the, the book itself, uh, you, you've done a good job of kind of setting the stage to mm -hmm. to help the reader understand I, the servant songs in the midst of Isaiah as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it'd be helpful maybe for the listener and viewer to, to get a little piece of that. You want to just kind of set the context a little bit of how the servant songs fit into the midst of Isaiah as a whole? Sure. I mean, it's like anything else in history. If I, if I bring up the, uh, the you know, the... Uh, 
Napoleonic Wars. And you're like, okay, I've never studied that. I don't know where they happened. I don't know the context. There's no interest at all. If I start giving you details about how cool they were, you're like, okay. But if I'm like, okay, imagine yourself, you know, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. We go back in time, drop you on the battlefield in, you know, 18... 15 or, you know, whenever it is. And I set the, the field of battle for you and the visual of what's actually going on. I've, I've now sucked you into the world of what I'm trying to share with you. And you have a deeper, it's like a, a, there's now a sphere in which you exist that you can actually absorb and, and, and categorize this information that I'm going to give you without that. I like to use the analogy of, of, um, like if I if if I were in control over you and I took you and I just dropped you in a very very cloudy gray area and you have no context of where you are and I just say run and you're like well how far am I running how fast do you want me to run and I just say run isn't running fun you're like well no I can't see what's around me I don't know how far you want me to run is this a sprint is it a marathon do I need to conserve my energy you know, whereas if I took you and I dropped you at the 13 mile marker and I said, this is a marathon and you're like, okay, now I know how to finish the race. I have context. I have understanding. So everyone at church makes fun of me because I always say context is king, right? We have to understand context. So Isaiah being an obscure part of the Old Testament anyway, at least from a modern perspective, to understand that Isaiah was a man who most likely had royal family connections in the household of of uh, the nation of of Judah. Uh, he was a man of relative prominence. You know, he's called the son of Amos what thirteen times. We don't really know much about him other than he's mentioned as as the possible brother to a king. And so, this is a guy of prominence, an insider, living in a kind of a palatial, probably lifestyle, relative comfort that God grabs a hold of and says, "I'm going to take you." And use your context to call the nation to judgment. Uh, who wants to be a prophet, right? <laughs> like we all want, you know, the the prestige. But now it's like you're going to go from from a palace insider to the most hated man in the country. And so what we're going to do then is use you to hold Israel or hold the, the nation of Judah to account for their 700 years of covenant disobedience to God, because they're going to ask, what have we done? Why do we deserve this judgment? And so Isaiah is serving as a prosecutor, in a sense, in the divine court, calling the nation to account for their crimes against God. And yet at the same time, there's this, there's this underlying theme of God's covenant love, that he set his love on them, and it wasn't contingent on their behavior. They are his. Now, there is a hope for our salvation, right, in that, that even despite their crimes against him, that he would create a way for them to be forgiven and for them to be restored to him. And that is our story. And so we can make fun of the nation of Israel. I mean, oh, they had God's word and he was there and they had the prophets and they still rejected him. Guess what? You would have done the same. And so we can grow in sympathy for them as people, but we can, we learn so much about God that he is patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love in loving kindness, faithful covenant, unchanging love for his people. And that's one of the overarching themes of the book that I want people to know. And so understanding that whole cultural context of where Israel started and where they were and, and why this, this call for the Assyrians are going to come and destroy them. And then you see this beautiful 
event of, you know, recorded three times in the Old Testament of Hezekiah turning to the Lord for help and, and submitting, you know, in humility to God. And any time that happened, God would restore his people and protect them. So there's this theme. And then the angel of the Lord comes and wipes out the Assyrian army, doesn't wipe out the judgment, but it does postpone it because God's patience is, is re renewed in his people, you know, and then God would bring about Babylon to accomplish that as they would again reject him. But we just see these themes then of Isaiah then taking people then saying, all this is going to happen to you, but while you're in captivity, you're going to be taught about God's person, his faithfulness, his plan of salvation, and then the end of the story, his the, the restoration that he has not only in mind for you, but extended as Isaiah 49, 6 says to all the nations of the, of the earth. And that's, it's just so exciting. Yeah, that's that. And that actually leads me to the next question, just because as as you've painted the backdrop for that, which I think is is great. It really helps the reader understand, which I think just if I can put put a plug in here, I, I just would encourage the 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 listener that anytime you're doing a study, whether it's New Testament or Old Testament, you really gotta do some work and understand the background. It just helps so much to understand 100%. that. Yeah. So one of the things uh, just that you talk about and that really helps fit this in is is how Isaiah talks about the servant. And, you know, some people, I think most most listeners will probably be aware of this, but some people might be think, wait a second, you're saying there's more discussion of the servant than just in Isaiah 53, mm. where it talks about his suffering. Yeah. And so do you want to kind of talk a little bit about the calling or vocation of the servant, just what he was to do? Yeah, so Isaiah 42 is sort of this introductory tableau that uh, that's God bursts onto the scene after kind of you know castigating the idols of the nations as empty and and powerless against him, and how Israel themselves it describes the nation of Israel as the servant, which you'll often hear from our Jewish uh, friends that well, no, actually Israel the nation was the servant. Well, yeah, you were, but you were called blind and and deaf and dumb. In Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 42, after that as well. But in between, God says, but behold, my servant. So he goes from, you were to be my servant to who is my servant going to be? My servant will act justly. My servant will be, will be these things. And so he's given several descriptives of being gentle and kind and authoritative and, and peace driven and reconciliatory and powerful and all of these things and how he's going to come really to bring God's righteousness and his justice, which we don't want to misinterpret as social justice, which I talk about in the book a little bit, because we don't want to import our understanding of words back into an ancient Near East context. But when the Old Testament uses that term justice, it means God's standards, his righteous decrees, his law. So it's effectively saying Christ will be the fulfillment of James chapter two, that he's going to be both the doer and the hearer of the word. He's going to share that. He's going to have a ministry from his mouth that is going to bring truth. It's going to you know, be a balm to some, and it's going to be a curse to others. He is going to then extend that salvation beyond just the tribes of Jacob and 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 the you know the house the houses of Israel to all the nations of the earth in Isaiah 49 he he begins the announcement by saying listen to me o coastlands and pay attention you peoples from afar and then it says god you know the lord formed me in the womb he he made me this 
this polished arrow, this, and he hid me in his quiver. It's this language of this perfect weapon that would be unleashed at the exact right time on the world and that he would accomplish his mission both near and far and that this salvation that he would accomplish for this future audience of Israel when they repent would also be accomplished for any of the nations who come to him. And then we see in Isaiah 50 that that his ministry, he would face uh, opposition. He would he would face hardship. He would be rejected by his nation. And yet he would set his face with a resolve to accomplish the will of his father. And that's what carries us into Isaiah 52, the last three verses in Isaiah 53, which is just the most magnificent song you could ever study. Uh, we And we dive into some of the theology of it in, in that chapter, but uh, where we're most familiar with, he was pierced for our transgressions, you know, and he was, he was, uh, you know, uh, wounded for us. And, and yet at the end he would, uh, God would prolong his days and he should see his offspring prosper and all of these. So we, even out of the, the, the turmoil that, that the servant would go through, that God would, would prosper his ministry and, and he would see an eternal benefit for that. Oh, that's, that's crucial. And actually, so I'm going to ask you something about the suffering servant mm-hmm. here, because I think, this is something I always struggled with, and I know you talk about it a little bit in your book. Uh, so a lot of people, you know, search high and low for you know the resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament, mm. and you 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 just I mean you painted a beautiful picture of just the salvation that Isaiah you know is prophesying and foretelling that's going to come through the servant. Now, do you see? Of course, I know the answer to this, but do you see <laughs> any uh, any? Evidence of resurrection of Jesus foretold in the Old Testament? A hundred percent. When you get to the last um the last stanza, the last three verses of Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12. I've got it on my screen. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. And this is not you know that he has been overwhelmed with grief. He he took our sin and bore the shame that we were meant to meant to meant to bear. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that is at that moment when he dies and atones for our sins, he then shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is mere language. It's like if Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 are on this side of the glass, Hebrews or Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 and 12 are on this side of the glass, foretelling that Jesus looking beyond the cross to see the hope uh, and the, and the accomplishment of the resurrection or of the, of the atonement in the redemption of his people, he, out of the anguish of his soul, he is going to see this, you know, by his knowledge, by what he accomplishes and by what he, he does on my behalf, the righteous one will make many to be accounted righteous. And so, you know, and then it gets into, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. How is he going to get a divided a portion of anything if he's dead and gone? So the language is inherent that he returns to life triumphantly. And then Paul, of course, clarifies that in 1 Corinthians 15, that that is the very foundation of our hope in, in the gospel is that the resurrection of Christ is our future resurrection. So I I see that very clearly. And I think we talk about that pretty deeply in in verses 10 to 12 of Isaiah 53. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I remember the first time, I don't know, did you have any- And it says, by the way, and he 
he bore the sins of many and he makes intercession for them, right? So his right. current active ministry as the great high priest is also uh, prophesied right there. Sorry. No, it's, <laughs> that's that <laughs> good. It's a, it's a, it's a deep text. You know, you could spend Amazing. a long time studying it. Mm-hmm. I, did you ever have Dr. Barrick for any classes? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I remember, I remember he was the first one who introduced me to the idea of a resurrection in, in Isaiah 53 mm-hmm. there. And I just remember thinking to myself, why did, has no one ever told me about that before? You know, it's just like, this, exactly. this solves so many issues, you know, <laughs> how, how could Jesus have told his disciples, you should have known about, you know, my suffering, you know, death and resurrection, you know, from the text. Yeah. And yeah, I think, I think it's I think, good. I, I think Timothy knew. If you read second Timothy three, when, when Paul is saying like, and you, Timothy, you know, who have been, uh, you know, um, who have known from your youth the scriptures which are wise to make you uh, to bring you to the salvation. He's effectively the the New Testament hadn't been written yet or most of or much of it. So he's saying from your youth, you've been reading the Old Testament and I would make an argument he was reading Isaiah. You know from Isaiah 53 that you can find salvation in this ministry of this Messiah who is coming for you who is now revealed in the person of Christ. And so yeah, yeah I mean it it answers so much um, bringing the two testaments together, you know, again, uh, different, different sides. It's uh, old Testament's all focusing in on Christ and what he's going to accomplish. And the new Testament blows out to the whole world, what he's done. So right. it, it connects the dots so well. Yeah, that's, that's well said, you know, as, as you've studied this, uh, you, you've obviously poured a lot of time into, into this. Um, so as you were studying and writing the book, did you, uh, did anything jump out at you at, in a fresh way that maybe you were either surprised, changed your mind on. I like to ask those things just because, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of times we're always reexamining our convictions and looking at things. You know, was there anything that just really struck you in a fresh way that maybe you hadn't thought about previously in your studies? Well, I think when I first dug into Isaiah 53, it was uh, it was in a Hebrew class with uh, Dr. Barrick or with Dr. Murphy. It was one of the two at Masters. And it was the those Hebrew... Um, verbal aspect challenges like aspect is all uh is all figured out through context and so when i I talk about this a little bit in the book and in the 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 chapter on getting the interpretation right because we have to be detectives when it comes to hebrew sometimes especially with the verbal the aspects of is it is it now is is isaiah talking about now is he talking about future is he talking about a future audience looking back like how do we decipher this and quite so just often, to, I just interrupt you for a second because I know some people are like I don't know Hebrew what's he talking about so in <laughs> in Hebrew there's basically two verb systems perfect and mm-hmm. imperfect and they're not really it's very difficult to tie them into time sometimes yeah like, like uh, Do- Dr Murphy would say like go went gone like I'm going to the store I went to the store I have gone to the store or I have been to the store you know um, immediately are we talking about now present future you know exactly. So, so those things are deciphered partly by figuring out who's talking and what are they talking about. So I talk about voice in the book and, you know, I lay it out, like think about reading a movie script. You can see who the character is and then what their lines are, then who the next character and what their lines are. We don't get that in the Bible, but we have all the clues to figure that out. And so when we do that, and then we put that in context with, okay, if it's God talking, then that it can't mean this aspect. If it's the people talking, it has to mean this aspect. So all the pieces begin to fit together. 
And I always kind of read Isaiah 53 because I grew up in the late 80s as a Striper fan, you know, like uh, by his stripes, we were healed like this is for us. And there is a very real sense based on First Peter and other places in the New Testament that it is, but it doesn't change its original meaning or context. So when we see that Isaiah 53 is a song to be sung by an audience that has not yet been born or has not yet been revealed at the return of Christ, a national future repentance of this audience who it's like there's an audience in the future reading a book written to an audience in the far past singing about an audience at Jesus time, you know, and so we have to kind of jump back and forth from future to past to really understand the aspect. But that really blew my mind when I saw God's God's covenant faithfulness to Israel is going to come to pass in a song he has written for them that they will echo and sing at the return of Christ, like Zechariah 12 says, when they look upon him whom they have pierced and they mourn. And that's, that's, that's such an incredibly faithful, beautiful thing. Oh, that's that's so good. And just you brought to mind, well, because I'm just imagining as people are listening, some people might be thinking, well, that's that's really deep and profound that there would be a, a song written to be sung at a later date. And I would just echo that that's a, that actually happens with at least some frequency in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I mean, Isaiah seems to be an indication of that, but you also have, I mean, one of the clearest examples that just came to my mind would be, um, I mean, you have Exodus 15 with Miriam's song, but you also have Deuteronomy 32, where mm-hmm. Israel's taught a song to sing later. and. Yeah. Ironically, Isaiah actually picks up on Deuteronomy 32 in some some passages. So that mm-hmm. that principle isn't just something you see in Isaiah, but it's just regularly how God um, is working with a forward future expectation for his people. So I well, appreciate I love you bringing that, you make, that up. I love that you make that point, because what was the purpose of Deuteronomy 32? To teach them my statutes so that when they reject me, I can hold them to account. And Isaiah was the one called then. To hold them to account. And so he's using that very evidence in a song they would have known and they would have been singing. Just like I I, I laugh because during Christmas, you know, you go to the mall and everyone's singing, Hark the Herald, like everyone, and joy to the world. And it's all around. They're singing, The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Nobody thinks about it because it's just cultural music. Right. And so that Deuteronomy 32 song would have just been, Well, that's what we sing. And Isaiah's like, No, no, no. This is the truth of God's bilateral covenant with you that you have rejected over and over, and he's holding them to account for it. The Old Testament is fascinating. It's so, and you know that, you teach it, but I, I love getting people excited about it because uh, to not read it and study it, you you miss so much joy and, and expression of God's character and his plan and all of that. So... Amen. And I'll wire you the money that I told you that, uh, <laughs> that I'd give you for saying the Old Testament is exciting. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's that's good. Well, I mean, our time needs to wrap up, we, uh, but I, I guess just one last question. Um, do you, as you think about those people, you know, who are watching or listening to this, uh, do you have any encouragement that you just want to leave to those who are, who are listening and why they should study Isaiah and the servant songs in particular? I mean, obviously they can buy your book to help them with that, but, but yeah. why, even, even apart from that, why, why is Isaiah the book to study? Yeah, Isaiah is the gospel of the Old Testament. Um, I I see that very clearly, that God, even in his anger, does not forget his mercy. Even in his very just and very righteous uh, judgment of a wicked and rebellious nation, looks upon them 
with with uh I don't want to use the word pity because that that implies no love, but with a an understanding of their inability to come to him without him making up the difference. And so he in his love and in his kindness provides the means. And it's not just the means, it is the infinitely valuable divine son of God means <laughs> to come and say, I'm the only one who can do this for you. And I will sacrifice everything to bring you into my household. And and, and if that doesn't excite a love and a devotion, um, if that and Ephesians 1 doesn't tell you who you are and your identity in Christ, uh, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, we find these truths to encourage and strengthen and buttress our souls in a world that is doing everything to shame us, to make us feel lost and hopeless, to drag us back into sin, uh, and to call us foolish for believing in such fairy tales. Uh, but the reality of Isaiah, the, the historically verifiable reality of his life and ministry, the historically verifiable, ver verifiable fulfillment of his prophecies, these are all meant to give us hope. And this is one of the reasons why I I had my friend Sarah um, Sparks. She's the cover artist here. She also, by the way, is a songwriter, and she wrote a new song because it's a book about songs. So she wrote also a new song. She's got tons. I mean, 100,000 followers on Spotify, beautiful songwriter. She wrote a song about this as well, but she did this cover art. I I believe I'm like my brother Owen Strain. I believe in aesthetics. I love studying it as a theological uh, topic, beauty and God's love for for using beauty to speak truth. And this image, I believe, demonstrates that really well. That the light of Christ, that is predicted in Isaiah nine two, the people who walked in darkness are now being shown the hope and truth from God, the the kindness and grace from God to offer them a salvation they do not deserve to call them into right relationship with him and then to make them co-heirs with Christ in his house and to be blessed forever. There is no greater kindness that could happen. There is no greater hope that we could have. And so I, I would never want anyone to read my book as just like, okay, I've done it, I've read it, or as an academic exercise, or well, he made some good points. I want Christ to be honored. I want our King to be magnified. I want God to be, I want your mind blown at how amazing God is. And part of that happens by reading Isaiah, by learning more about the Old Testament and seeing how God's whole plan of salvation comes together. Amen. That's powerful. <laughs> well, my special guest has been Kyle Swanson. He's the pastor and elder at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona. Kyle, thanks for joining us today. Peter, thank you so much for having me. Love you guys. We'll be praying for you. Looking forward to more ministry opportunities together. Amen. Now, if you want to pick up uh, Kyle's book, Isaiah's Great Light, you can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever else you want to find your books. So that's Isaiah's Great Light. If you want more information about the podcast or about me, you can visit petergaming.com. As always, if you want to reach out and contact me, you can access the contact form on my website there. Love to hear from you, whether it's good things or bad things. You can always reach out. Uh, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.